Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Talking in Circles. I am Clayton Caldwell, Philip Matthew, and Spencer Cowan as we're bringing you another episode of Talking in Circles. Tonight on tap, we will discuss NASCAR's new news today that single car qualifying is back. We will revert back to our 2013 uh, qualifying rules. It's been five years since we did single car qualifying. Hard to believe, but we're going back to that NASCAR has announced here uh, this after, this evening, we'll discuss that. Also, it's been 25 years today that Ayrton Senna had died in a crash. Philip Matthew, who is a big fan and, and a historian, will discuss that and the legacy Senna left behind. Also, the Generation 7 car has been getting a little bit of buzz here the last couple of weeks. Also, the business behind it. Team owners want NASCAR to pay for it. What does that mean? Is it feasibly possible? Also, we'll break down Dover. Triple header weekend this weekend. Trucks, Xfinity, and Cup in action this weekend at Dover International Raceway. We'll get your phone calls in there as well. 917-889-8280 is the number to call here on Talking Circles tonight. If you want to discuss anything NASCAR-related, we're here to discuss that tonight on Talking Circles. First, guys, I want to get to the news of the evening of the day. Single car qualifying is back. It was a real cluster group qualifying we saw it in California. We saw it in Vegas. The last few weeks, it, it just seems like these teams have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Um, no more will we see a time qualifying session, waiting around and waiting till the last two minutes for 50 cars to run, drive on a racetrack and try and get a qualifying lap. No more will we see teams qualifying laps getting uh, hurt because somebody else either screwed them up or spun out and crashed. Just single car qualifying runs on tracks. 1.2 miles or, or larger, we will do one lap on tracks less than that. We will do two laps to determine qualifying and determine the starting positions for each race. Philip Matthew, a revert back to what we used to see back in NASCAR a little bit. Uh, what are your thoughts here on the news of the day? Yeah, I mean, the, it's it was necessary, and, uh, you know, it, it kind of reminded me of what they, when they had the group qualifying at, restrictor plate races and how bad that ended up being and some of the incidents that took place and some of the ridiculous results that came up because of that. Uh, This new rules package that they have, which is akin to running the truck series package on a car, uh, has basically left a bunch of smart people. You put a bunch of smart people out there and they're like, well, the only way we're going to be able to get a fast lap is if we're the last person out there. And so they they put themselves in that box, the sanctioning body with the way they made these this rules package. Uh, they wanted a Scott Miller and his stupidity. It was like, oh, we're in the entertainment business. So not qualifying any of the final 12 cars of California was part of the entertainment business. And, well, I guess in their case it was part of the entertainment business because – Daniel Suarez giving Michael McDowell a right cross is going to be part of a bunch of their uh, uh, media packages to promote races for years. Uh, I guess that's entertainment. But in terms of the actual qualifying, and qualifying wasn't meant to be entertainment. And before, like, 1996, nobody knew, nobody gave two pieces of monkey crap about watching qualifying. It was because of how ESPN actually provided proper coverage for people that are listening to this and didn't watch pre before 2001 that did exist. There was a time when ESPN was the worldwide leader in motorsports. Uh, when they had the coverage, they actually covered it well, and it was single car qualifying. Uh, it's because of Fox and NBC and whoever's come along, ESPN. They come up with all these gimmicks and things, and this group qualifying, it works in every other series. And virtually in any other series that I've seen, it works just fine. It has its quirks. It has its problems occasionally. But NASCAR figured out a way to screw it up. So now that they're back to one lap qualifying, single car qualifying, good, whatever. They still had to figure out a way to be, make it NASCAR and make it goofy, but I'll take it. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, there's no doubt what we saw here, especially at Fontana, cannot happen. I mean, um, and I know te- te- everybody's going to blame the teams and all that kind of stuff. And still, to me, it's much more simplified this way. You know, it's so much easier to figure out where, hey, 
you know what? Everybody's going to be doing one or two laps, depending on the type of track we run at. Personally, I think it's, it'd be easier if we just did two laps the way we used to do it everywhere we go. Two laps, call it a day. But I guess they want to keep qualifying shorter. They think by you know uh, the tracks that are bigger, doing one lap, they'll keep it shorter. Um, Spencer, does it make a big difference in your mind here, this qualifying, whether it's group qualifying or single car qualifying? Um, does it make a big difference to you? What are your thoughts? Well, yeah, now we won't see a you-know-what show. So, But, no, I think it's really going to show who has the faster car. You know, like we've mentioned in the past, you know, you get these drafts and, uh, you know, you could have an off car, but you get in this draft and you're going to qualify better than what you should. Um, but I think the only the only thing that's going to hurt is the smaller teams, and I've mentioned that in the past. You know, they took this as an advantage, you know, group qualifying, in case they can get that, you know, tail-end draft or that two-car draft going and make a little bit better of a lap and get a better spot for the race. But other than that, um, no, the single-car qualifying need to happen. Um, like I said, it really shows who's faster. Um, and the group qualifying, you know, made us made NASCAR look like a joke. So uh, there was a lot of talk after what happened uh, with the final 12 cars not even completing a lap. Um, so, yeah, now we won't have that problem. And uh, the only screw-up can be is the driver in the race car not hitting his lines on the racetrack and screwing up his lap. So um, I think it's a good job by NASCAR going back to single-car runs. Yeah, it brings competition back a little bit. And something interesting here that, that we haven't seen in the past that we're going to see is built-in breaks. It sounds like there's going to be a couple two-minute breaks built in here. Uh, I would think between the first group of 20 and the last group of 20 to try and keep everybody featured during qualifying. That was one thing NASCAR wants to do is try and get every car live on, on during qualifying. So, you know, there's been times in the past where we've seen qualifying where, you know, two two or three cars go while we're on commercial break. And, um, you know, you kind of miss your guy, your driver qualifying. And so I guess NASCAR is going to try and get that out of there by doing that. We'll see how that works. I'm, I'm a little skeptical on that. I just think it's going to take longer than they think. But, um, you know, here's something else, Philip. You know, Spencer brought up a decent point where these smaller teams might get hurt by this. But let's let's throw this out here. You know, I, I think part of the fun of, of a race weekend is sort of determining uh, how how much time you're going to spend on, in race setup during practice and qualifying setup during practice. How much time – how much does qualifying really matter? Does it matter that you have clean air, that you start up in the front, that you have good track position to start the race? Certain race tracks, it matters more than others, um, you know, and qualifying, the qualifying setup is usually a lot different than your race setup, than your long run setup. So to kind of put the balance between that, uh, I think it makes it a lot more interesting other than what we've seen here where it's really been draft, um, you know, a draft this year where you, you can kind of use the setup anytime you want. So um, the same setup for qualifying, the same setup for the race that we've seen this year. So uh, do you think that balance might help the little teams just a little bit where, if they focus maybe one or two more runs on, on qualifying, that it might help them a little bit to where they can qualify a little bit better. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think they've, I mean, amongst the many changes that they've made over the years, they've reduced practice at a lot of races now compared to what we used to have back when we both started watching. Uh, so there's that. I mean, the, these crew chiefs and the way they go and program and they, set up their programs, it's almost determined before they even get to the racetrack what their plan's going to be, unless weather comes into play or or there's, you know, I mean, some sort of off thing comes into play. Uh, so I believe that there will be some of the smaller teams, I mean, especially, I guess, non-chartered teams, if there is more than 40 cars, would probably spend – a little more time on qualifying. Uh, if there isn't more than 40, then those smaller teams, like the really small teams, are just going to take their, you know, position and take their pit, pit spot and call it a day. Um, I'm curious about inspection processes and how that'll be with this qualifying, if there's going to be pre-qualifying inspection or there's going to be post-qualifying inspection and then if they're going to do another one after a pre-race, like how that'll be, uh, that might be a little thing to watch. And I figured it really isn't, I think the teams that would be up front are always going to stay up front, not really. I don't believe that this is going to change for them that much. I think for a team like RCR, 
who um, seemingly had fast times during practice earlier this year and then really could, you know, I guess sometimes they matched it, sometimes they didn't, and then in race trim they're garbage. We'll see how it affects them uh, compared to some of the other teams. But, I mean, I, I think it's a net positive, and it'll it'll probably affect it, it'll affect practice a little bit, but I don't think it really is going to be as big of an effect as it may have been a few years ago when they made such a drastic change of qualifying. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. One final thing here, and it's something we're missing, is is the cost aspect, guys. Um, you know, part of the reason why I think we went to this group qualifying format in a lot of people's minds is because of what I just said, you know, the owners kind of look at the, that cost met cost and say, well, we don't want to put all our money into qualifying setup where we can just do a race setup. So um, I'm not sure that really makes a difference to me as a fan. I, you know, I'm not trying to sound unsympathetic to it, but, I, but I'm going to be honest with you. I really don't care that these multi-billion dollar team owners have to spend a little bit more money to put on a better product for the fans. I'm sorry. I, I don't think that's a big deal to me. So uh, I just want to point that out for sure. 917-889-8280 talking in circles. It's Clayton Cole with Philip Matthews, Spencer Cowan here tonight. Philip, I want to get your take on this. You know, uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I won't put some words in Spencer's mouth, but I, I will. For me, at least, Arton Senna um, is sort of a, a driver who um, I only know very little about. You know, I hear a lot of people. I, when I was five years old in 1994, Spencer was years and years from being born yet. But um, I I never watched him race. You know, I wasn't a Formula One fan growing up. I really didn't even know what Formula One was growing up. I knew NASCAR and that was probably it. And some IndyCar. I didn't even know what Formula One was until probably the mid the late the early to mid two thousands. Um so he was long gone by the time I got interested even a little bit into Formula One. What can you tell us about this driver and his legacy a little bit? Um, you know, it's been twenty five years since the accident, uh and you read all kinds of things about how great of a race car driver he was. What did his death mean to, to the sport? And, um, you know, com- can you compare it to what, I mean, we all know in the NASCAR world, what Dale Earnhardt's death meant to the NASCAR world in the Daytona 500. What did Arton Senna's death mean uh, to Formula One race- and open wheel racing? I mean, the easy, there's, there's one way to put it. The fact is in his home country of Brazil, there was three days of mourning that was set by the president of Brazil. They, he went and set three days of mourning for the death of Ayrton Senna. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets when his casket was brought back to Brazil from Italy. They, when they did the funeral procession after his church, when he was, when they did the service at church, and then thousands of people that were there lining the streets it i mean it's emotional for me because i was a very young kid and i just come off of losing davy allison as a fan and i was very young and and that's something you know like you never know how what life is or what when you're that young you don't understand death you don't understand anything like that and then you lose one of your heroes and he he was flying a helicopter it wasn't even in a race car well not not only was Senna in a race car, he was leading the race, but he crashed, and it was a severe crash. And all the things that went on and that he had talked about it with his former teammate, Gerhard Berger, that they needed to make changes at that corner. You know, that was a severe, there wasn't that much runoff area. They had discussed what they were going to do at Monaco in a couple of weeks. You know, there was all these different things, all the different stories. Like he had made up with, Alan Prost, who was his longtime rival and former teammate. Senna's death to Formula One, in a lot of ways, is similar to what Dale Earnhardt's death was to NASCAR because you lost an icon. You lost one of the greatest, if not the greatest, driver that has ever been in that series. You lost somebody that was was had its had his definite favorite people who loved them and then people who hated them. They, they both did not like to lose. They were both willing to go cross the line at times to get what they wanted. 
but deep down inside, they both had hearts of gold. And uh, Simon was a deeply religious person. So Dale Earnhardt cared so much about his family and his, you know, and we've seen like, I mean, I mean, we hear it from Junior and all that, but like he cared about people and he'd like to do things. He didn't want any credit for stuff and he would do these things. Senna gave back to his country. He gave back and to schools and he cared about little children knowing that they were in poverty in Brazil and he set up foundations and he set up all these things and his sister has set up all these you know, different deals in his name, in his honor to keep his legacy alive. In 25 years, I mean, it's unbelievable to think what it's been that long. And I remember that day still, and I, I remember where I was sitting. Or it's, it's the same way as, like, I remember when I saw Senior pass away, too, and you know, like there's those moments in time that you'll always remember for certain people, certain age. And that's one of those things for me. And it's still, it still stays with me. And I've read about him. I've read about his history and life and it's made me appreciate more of what he brought to the sport and more of what he was as a person. And people still consider him one of the greatest, if not the greatest of all time. It's the same way Dale Earnhardt was seen. And also, and, and bigger than that, after that, they had to make changes to racetracks, which has probably taken away some of the, the fire and some of the things that made Formula One great. But on top of that, they made a lot of changes to the cars and to the safety for the drivers, which was the main thing that came from Dale Earnhardt's passing was the safety enhancements that, frankly, were there, but NASCAR decided not to bother with, um, which is the same as them not bothering to go and get a permanent safety crew until like two years ago, which is idiotic, but that's a whole other story. Those changes, those things that came along, I mean, sadly, we had to see three other people die the year before. It took Dale Earnhardt dying for it to really become a big thing, yep. but it that the those two the passing of two icons can be connect those two those two losses can be connected to why all these safety enhancements have came along, why all these changes have been made to cars, theoretically in some ways maybe slowing them down, but it's it, uh, it unfortunately it's a product of what racing has been or it has always been about that there's that there's that edge you could be on that knife edge and you could possibly pass away excuse me and for people like me who, who was an I who, who, who I was an Ayrton Senna fan I still will be and I'll go until the end of my life it was a sad day and oh, sure. still sad thinking about it 25 years later and we're coming up on a 20-year anniversary in a couple of years of Dale's passing, and it's going to be sad, and it's sad every year. You know, his birthday was a couple yeah. days ago, you know, and I remember Dale won that day. Uh, I think it was Talladega, and he had his daughter in his hand, and he one of the first things he said was he gave a comment about Ayrton Senna, and he talked about how great of a driver he was. And that's that's the proof positive of what, when you are at that level, there's only few people can understand, you know, being that good at what mm-hmm. they do. And those two were in that level. And he appreciated Senna's greatness. And I figure vice versa, because when Senna came over to America and he understood, he tried, he thought about coming to IndyCar racing. He, he understood that. I mean, he was bigger than Formula One. Uh, and he was bigger than motorsport. He was, big, he, he was so big, like a whole entire country lived and breathed him, you know. And uh, so, yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's still a tough something day. that sticks. Yeah, and then, and I mean, it, it was funny going through my my Facebook and going through all my my memories and for like I don't know how many years in a row they saved back. So I think it's like the last six years, and I'm like I post every year. Some years I post a little note I did today. I only got to post it this afternoon, but um, yeah, he's there. There's certain people in this world that you know that have a meaning and have something they stay with you. 
And for me in my life, that's Ayrton Senna is one of those people. And uh, yeah. he he's a legend. He, he will be a legend forever. And he'll be respected the world of world of, across the world and appreciated for what he did, not only behind the wheel, but outside of the race car. For sure. And, uh, you know, you, you talked about the similarities to Earnhardt's death, and that's kind of why I wanted to tie it in because it was his birthday. You know, and I remember Earnhardt's vividly. You know, I mean, you, like you said, you remember where you're sitting. You remember what, what happened. You remember what you were doing. Um, and you remember the time you're told. And, and goodness, I remember where I was, you know, when, when my father came up and I was at a friend's house playing Manhunt back in the day. Um, and, yeah, I know it was February and we were playing Manhunt, but it's true. Um, and my dad came up in his old truck and, and told me straight to my face and I was, couldn't believe it. I said, you're not, you're kidding. And he's like, no, no, Dale Earnhardt is gone. And we were like, what? Like, it, it didn't seem like that bad of an accident. I mean, when you're look, you look back at it now and you're like, okay, you can see it, but we just watched Tony Stewart, you know, 30, 40 laps earlier, go upside down and spin and go crazy. And he was fine. He walked away. So that was a real um, that was a real tough accident. And Spencer, I know you got some ties there. You live in Daytona. Your mother's from Dale's hometown. Uh, what does the death of Dale Earnhardt mean to you, and and even to that community, Daytona? Do you think Daytona's ever been the same since that? I mean, when we think of Daytona, and there's people who who got killed at Daytona, no doubt about it. Um, you know, Friday Hassler in the 125s, a bunch of people in the 150s back in the day in the 80s have gotten killed at Daytona before. Um, even Marshall T got, got killed there and a bunch of people in, in the sixties doing, um, tire tests and all that kind of stuff. Daytona was, it was a treacherous track when it came in, but how, so the fact that it's been so recent and it, it was such a monumental name has Daytona in your mind ever been the same since then? What is the death of Dale Earnhardt meant to you guys there in Daytona? Well, like like you said, I was young when it happened, and uh, I can't remember where I was, but I can tell you right now, every time I go past the racetrack or sit in the stands, you know, with anybody I go to, with anybody I go with, and I look over there, you know, it's you know a, the exact spot, you know, because I've watched videos so many times about it. Um, they got the statue out front, um, and yeah, like my mom's dad used to go out and hang out with Dale Hart, go to the racetrack with him, so my mom was you know, kind of big on the whole NASCAR side when she was younger. But, uh, yeah, um, you know, there's not a, like, when I think racing, I don't, there's not a time where I don't think about Dale Earnhardt. Uh, and, yeah, I think it has changed, you know. Um, you know, I know all the drivers. I'm sure the drivers, like, how could you not pass that spot and know that the legend died there, especially for Dale Jr. I don't see how he could pass that spot. And, like, every time he passed it, you know, I just feel like he would be like, well, that's where my dad hit. I mean, it would be hard not to. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, it's like you said, almost 20 years, uh, that's a long time. And, but yeah, I think, uh, there's not a person who goes into that racetrack, not thinking, uh, that he lost his life there. One of the greatest in our sport. So, uh, yeah, I was young when it happened. So, um, it didn't really mean so much to me cause I don't even think I was in NASCAR yet. But, uh, once you go, once I got older, I really knew how big of a deal it was. And, yeah. uh, yeah, it's a, a sad day when it is his birthday, knowing you know, like you said, Tony Stewart flipped and tumbled down the back straightaway, and he was fine. And then you take a, a hard hit to the outside wall, and it takes your life. So it's uh, it's crazy to think. Like you said, other people have uh, lost their lives in NASCAR, but his is just so dramatic and so big for his name to yeah. the sport. So, uh, yeah, I think it's changed for sure. And, and it's funny because – not funny, I should – lack of a better term, but, um, you know, you said that Spencer and you're absolutely right. Every time I walk into that place, you know, for whatever reason, you always kind of gravitate your eye when you're glancing over the racetrack and you first walk in, you're like, wow, this place is a mantra. And every time it's, it's to me, it's breathtaking. I love it. But you stop and pause for a few seconds and look over at turn four and just like, man, that's that, I can't even imagine what that day was like being here. And and it just it's natural, I guess, because it just makes you it just makes you pause and put you in your seat, and it makes you enjoy, you know, the things we complain about, you know, about the group qualifying. It makes you enjoy uh, the little things a little bit more, um, you know. It, and I also bring, and you're aware of this, Spencer. I also bring a, fr- a friend of mine, a family member who just got into NASCAR in the last five years, 
and he's, you know, as curious as can be because, you know, when we go to Daytona, we drive the route to Halifax on the way home. And, you know, every time I'm on Halifax and I pass Halifax, I think about that accident because it's just like, wow, you know, and, and, uh, but he says to me, you know, what was that like? And he goes, could you put it into a sports, you know, a football? Cause he's more in a, he was, you know, grew up with football fan or, or uh, a basketball fan or a hockey fan. And I kept saying, Philip, you know, I can't do that. You know, I, I can't it, – it, it would be – you can't even think about what that, what that would be like. It's so humongous that it's worse than anything you can ever think of. You know, um, when the Yankees lost Thurman Munson, their, their, their star catcher back in – I believe it was 1979, August yeah. 2nd, 1979, and he, he died in a plane crash. You know, a lot of people – look at that as the, sort of the end of the Yankees run there in the 70s. That was the beginning of the end. But I even think, and, and not trying to put one life more valuable than another, but as far as sports are concerned, I even think Earnhardt's death was deeper than that. I mean, there's still people who haven't recovered. Uh, when you think about the, the impact it had on, on Dale Earnhardt Incorporated, when you think about all those kind of things um, – you just say, hey, you know what? You can't even put into words what that accident meant. And do you feel like that's the same with Arton Center, Philip? Yeah, I mean, there there were a lot of people that I think once that happened, <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of Brazil, it took, it, they've never had a driver. I mean, it's almost impossible to find a driver like him ever again. There's been Brazilian drivers that have tried to run in Formula One. There's been a couple Brazilian drivers that have come close to winning a world championship, but he's the last one that has to this day, and it's very likely that it's going to be a while before that that happens again. Uh, there were people that left, and with all the changes, slowing some of the things they did, making they kind of neutered the circuits and made them more, put a lot more chicanes and kind of things like that. There were people that left. And, and I, I don't think in a lot of ways Formula One recovered from from those people that left. I think what they did was they kind of re reinvented themselves and said that, you know, we're safer now, we're trying to work on these things. And what what worked in their favor, which in a sense I think Jeff Gordon to a lesser extent kind of was there at that point, and you kind of had Tony Stewart. And then you had some of those other – you had the veterans like, like uh, Martin and Elliott and Wallace where Schumacher was the guy. Michael Schumacher came in, and at that point his – coming in was kind of where Senna had that, you know, he finally had a one-on-one battle and we never got to see that through. Well, Senna, I mean, Schumacher went and took off and became the guy. And, you know, other guys tried to give him problems and at times he went over the edge and stuff like that, but they were able to kind of reinvent themselves and get behind this Michael Schumacher and Germany came in and some of these other countries that hadn't had world champions started, you know, getting support, you know, England hadn't had a world, they had one world champion in, in a like 20 year period with Nigel Mansell, Damon Hill wins the world championship in 96. Jacques Villeneuve comes from car, IndyCar, goes there, wins the world championship in 97 as a Canadian, you know? So, I mean, there was different countries, different people are represented. Uh, I think the Williams team, in a lot of ways, they were able to because they won some world championships after that. But I look at where they are now, and I kind of think it was like the the combination of all these things and all that time of trying to compensate that it's finally caught up to them, and now they're not the they're like the worst team out there. Um, DEI by the time they were done. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the circuit was not one of the best teams out there. And when Dale Earnhardt made that team and he hitched his wagon to Steve Park, uh, initially he wanted that team to be the number one team, you know, being not, not just a Chevy team, just the best team. And if 
he was there, if he was still here, I'm certain they, they'd probably be up there. Um, and I don't think all these problems with Camaros and all that sort of probably be going on if Earnhardt was still around. But, yeah, I mean, it, it, it had an effect and it still has an effect to this day because even drivers that weren't even – that are that were aren't even alive weren't even alive when Senna was passed away. Still know because people talk to him about it or they read about it or they see the videos or so it's the same way as watching Dale Earnhardt jump out of his car at Richmond in eighty five or whatever and cleaning his window or yeah. going in in the past what they call the past in the grass or going and driving sideways or whatever, driving his car in 79, you know, and, and winning a, winning in his rookie year and then winning a championship next year. I mean, there's so many things that he did. And, I mean, they'll never be forgotten. So greatness yeah. is never forgotten. Well, and, and you know, the, this and the Senate crash, you know, it's one of those things that I, I believe there was an onboard shot of it too, so that's even crazier. Um, it, it, you know, it's what – it's funny because I have a, a – at my work, I have a little calendar of sporting sports, this day in sports history or something like that. And Artan Seno's quote was on there today, and it marks the 25th anniversary of his death. And I kind of thought about it now, and I said, this was 2019. You know, not to take anything away from the guys today, but I'm not sure a lot of people would know who they are. You know, I mean, Lewis Hamilton's a very good – a very popular name. Um but, you know, I think if you'd ask the average Joe who Lewis Hamilton was, I'm not sure, they kind of look at you like, who? You know, you have to really be a race fan. I feel like Senna and Dale Earnhardt, for, for, for sure, everybody knew who those guys were. So um, it just shows you the kind of impact they had on their sport. Uh, and it's just something never be forgotten. 25 years ago today, it's hard to believe that Ayrton Senna died uh, 25 years ago today. Uh, this day, May 1st, 1994, uh, will never be forgotten. Uh, something else I want to discuss about tonight, guys, um, the gen seven car, uh, for NASCAR, when you think about NASCAR and a gen seven car, um, that is the next generation of stock car we're going to see here. Um, rumors are, it's going to be rolled out around 2021. It's going to have a lot of different package, a lot of different features in it. Um, some good, some bad, and we're still a long ways away, but you know, as far as uh, technology and all that kind of is concerned, we're really not that far away. We, we're a year. I, I think about it. A year from today, we'll be sitting here talking in 2020 about the car for next year and saying, well, we got to kind of figure out what's going on with this car for next year. So it's really not as far away as we think. We're going to see uh, some of it at the all-star race. We're going to see some, some package uh, there for it. So, um, you know, the business behind it, it, it was interesting. It came out this weekend, Spencer, that um, the owners sort of want NASCAR to foot the bill for this car. They don't want to uh, pay for the money to, to, to fork it over. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's a, a – um, do you think the owners have a right to say that? You know, I mean, if you think about a NASCAR owner, they've changed since 2007, which has only been 12 or 13 years now. Um you know, we've had the Gen 5, the COT, the Gen 6, and then we're going to have four generations of race cars in about 15 years. And I think these owners are sort of saying, no more. You know, we won't want to pay for it anymore. Do you think the owners have a right to do that? What are your thoughts? I mean, why not? I mean, you you keep changing these cars, and as you mentioned, they have to pay for it. I mean, they're not the ones saying, hey, let's change the car. This is NASCAR's. So if NASCAR wants to put this car out for whatever reason, no telling what's going on in their mind, um, you know, why not? Or at least help. I mean, you know, the owners, if they wanted to pay for it, they would say, hey, let's change the car, but they're not. Um, but at the end of the day, you are a race team owner, and you are racing in the NASCAR, whatever you want to call it. You're racing in NASCAR, and NASCAR can do whatever they want. Um, they can change the car, or they don't have to change the car. But, yeah, I can see where the owners are coming from. They're tired of paying for it. It's a lot of money, you know, a lot, a lot of money. Um, so, I mean, yeah, they can argue it, but do I really think NASCAR is going to pay for it? No, they're not. Uh, NASCAR, I don't think, will pay one red penny towards these teams' thing um, towards this new car. So, 
Yeah, they have every right to say it. Whether or not it happens is two totally different things. But in my eyes, I don't think NASCAR is going to pay for anything. Um, but, yeah, they can say it all they want. I, I agree 100%. I don't think NASCAR is going to pay at all. You know, And this is going to get into a little bit more of a deeper discussion than I originally wanted to get into, but I'm going to say it anyway. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a real good friend um, about racing and just how – it just seems like nowadays, and maybe maybe this happened forever, and I was just too naive because I was too young. Um, it just seems like nowadays everybody sort of looks out for themselves. The TV TV networks look out for themselves. The drivers are looking out for themselves. Uh, the owners are looking out for themselves. The radio guys are looking out for themselves. Uh, and I felt like when this sport was on its up and up, everybody worked together. To because they said we got to do it for the best interest of the sport, and nobody really cared because we were all making so much money and everything was thriving. We kind of sat there and said, "That's fine. I don't care. We'll make it now." Now that we're losing the money that we had come in, I feel like things have changed, and everybody's sort of saying, "Well, I don't want to lose my money. I don't want to lose my money. I don't want." And it's almost like, well, maybe if we quit pointing fingers at each other and we work together, maybe we, this sport can thrive again like it did ten, fifteen years ago. Um, that's how I feel about it, and I thought you brought up good points there, Spencer. I don't think NASCAR is going to pay a dime for it. Um, these owners – you hit the nail on the head. These owners, most of them, at least the big guys, the Penske's of the world, the Chip Ganassi's of the world, the Joe Gibbs of the world, uh, this Gene Haas's of the world, um, have more money than we can ever even dream of. And I'm not saying that means that they, they can go out and spend millions and millions of dollars, but – I don't think NASCAR as a company should be should go out there and say, yeah, we'll, we'll foot the bill for you guys. And they're going to spend their money anyway. That's what I, you know, these owners and Rich, Robert Yates used to say, you know, kind of save us from ourselves. These owners would, would spend their money anyway. They're just going to spend it in a different spot. Um, so, you know, maybe they're not making as much money as they used to because the sponsorship dollars aren't as high as they used to. And, Everybody's getting a little bit cranky, I guess. But, you know, Philip, I, I think what we need to look out for, and if this new generation of car, this Gen 7 car, is going to be better than the Gen 6 car, then we need to do it. We need to do it because, you know, it's not a secret. The ratings are down, and the tracks are tearing down seats. It's not a secret. It doesn't mean NASCAR is going to die. It's not, quote unquote, dying. It's just not as popular as it used to be. And you want the seats to go up. You want the ratings to continue to, to thrive because a lot of the money comes from the TV deals. But let's be honest, you know, and I always said this, and, and, and finally NASCAR could come out and said they have a problem, which is refreshing to hear because for 15 years they denied it. You know, in order to fix a problem, the first thing you have to do is admit you have one. And it finally looks like they're admitting they have one. So I guess in the end of the day, Philip, is if this Generation 7 car is – what the fans want, what everybody thinks is going to put this sport in the right direction as far as the on-track product is concerned, then I don't see what the issue is. Here's my biggest fear, is that we get into developing this car, and this car is rolled out, and we're excited. And don't say it hasn't happened, because last year, the rule package we saw in the All-Star Race, everybody was sort of excited. I didn't care for it. But the owners put their foot down and said, no, absolutely not. We're not going to see it until 2019. And we didn't see it again after what we saw in the All-Star Race because the owners put their foot down and said, absolutely not. So here we are now um, in 2019. My biggest fear is that the owners put their foot down and say, nope, we don't want the Gen 7 car. And we sit down, and, it's, and we're potentially wasting three, four years of really good racing that we could see with the Gen 7 car because the owners don't want to foot the bill. What are your thoughts on this, Philip Matthew? Well, talking about, I mean, you both made good points, and I, I get, I get that sentiment. I mean, the truth is, since we went from those lobster freaking Gen Four cars in 2006, which then in 2007 the Gen Five CRT, that car went what is it six seven years or whatever it is, and now we have this car, and it's been changed. The body styles have been changed. Uh, every manufacturer has theoretically changed your body style once. Um, I think about the sport or the series that's basically the closest to in terms of track on track product, return on investment, 
in in the states and it's IndyCar. IndyCar is basically subsidized. They subsidize it by because they have you know whatever Big Brother is Indianapolis Motor Speedway and all all the the the, the George family and all those people the people that are invested in IMS and they basically subsidize the series so that teams can go and these lower level teams can compete because there aren't that many teams that really have big time sponsorship. Penske and Ganassi are really, and Andretti are the only teams that really have massive sponsorship. There are some other teams that are coming up there. Um, So the reality is if that subsidy wasn't there, what is right now one of the more healthy, theoretically more healthier series, their car count wouldn't really be there the engine supply probably costs would probably be through the roof. They probably already are anyway. Um, they wouldn't have a car that would be more cost contained. It is a spec car in a lot of ways. This car that they have the last couple of generations of the car is a spec car because it doesn't look anything like what you're going to see on the, on the street. Your the front nose and the back, the back section are the only things that make it differentiate it and the theoretically the engine but even that's whatever the fact that the owners want nascar to go and help subsidize it i don't blame them for saying that um frankly nascar and the france family and whatever have spent a lot of time and a lot of years you know making all these changes and they've kind of done what they could to ruin the sport and when you think about how many people are really left that own all these cars in the end, there's really about five or six people that own all the cars. You know, you think about it, it's, it's Rick Hendrick, Joe Gibbs, uh, Richard Childress. I consider Tony and Gene the same thing. It's whatever. So it's five and then Penske. There's about six owners that really subsidize, the majority of the field. I mean, yeah, Jack Roush is there, but their their team's basically on its last legs. It's the same way Yates was a, a decade plus ago. Um, they're they're basically done. There's no there's no plan for them. Um, you have Bob Jenkins who's trying to make it work on his own, and they're struggling mightily. The one owner that was there that was outside that was sort of an outlier is Barney Visser and they ran him out of the sport. So the reality is there's about six people that really subsidize this whole entire sport. So if you get all six people sitting there and saying, oh, yeah, I ain't going to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars per car when you're talking about 12 to 15 cars times four teams to go and subsidize this, you have to make it some, you have to make it cost effective. In the end, is NASCAR really going to go and put any money down I don't think so, even though I know they're flush for money because they make tons of money. They don't really care that the the sport is going down the toilet or that the TV this or that. They're making money hand over fist. They have so many entitlements, they don't have to worry about anything. BZF was a moron, but the one thing they did is he made all his whole family rich. So in the end, it would be to their advantage to at least subsidize some portion of the process. It won't happen. And then we're probably not, we're going to lose some people. We're going to lose some teams. So then all of a sudden Rob Kaufman's grand idea of the, of the, the, what do you call the charter that won't have any value anyway, or all these low level, all these low level owners, that want to go and get their buck will go and drive out there and they'll be running starting parks again with charters. That That's basically what's going to end up happening. It's a, I, I don't know what's going to happen with the Gen 7, but I have a feeling that we're going to probably lose a few cars if it comes fully to fruition as it currently stands. It's funny you say that because uh, I had a buddy of mine who I talk racing with who said the same exact thing. He said, I don't know how these car owners are going to put up with it. 
how they're going to do what they, what they do. Um, you know, they're going to build new race cars. I mean, we're going to lose teams anyway. We only have 36, 38 now. Anyway, we're going to lose a couple of teams and it's a fair point. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, I don't think these owners are hurting for money. I'm sorry. You know, I, I remember a couple of years ago, somebody told me that the rate, the racetracks, and I laughed at them, the racetracks don't make any money. Um, and I said, I'm, I don't know who told yeah, you that, okay. but they must, they must work for a racetrack because that's the furthest thing from the truth. I mean, obviously the independent owned racetracks, which the two left we have left on the cup series are Dover and Pocono. They might not make as much money as ISC or SMI, but you know, they just announced I, ISC just announced a fifty million dollar renovation in the infield of Talladega this past week. So they're not hurting for money. And I feel like the owners are the same way. And and what I'm getting at is, you know, and I'm not trying to sound like poor, poor pitiful fans, but these owners aren't hurting for money. I'm sorry, they're not. And yeah, they're the you know, without them you could argue that we wouldn't have a sport, which I, I, I disagree with because you know, let's say they pack up and go home. Okay, fine. We'll find somebody else to, to put the cars together. You know, it's it's honestly true, the truth. Now, when we have the marketing team and all that, it's different. Um, so I guess what my point is, Spencer, is like you said earlier, it's NASCAR's game. It's NASCAR's sport. They could tell them, that, you know, okay, you don't like it, go home. And I feel like when, when Bill France Jr. was around, Brian France's dad – that's how Bill French Jr. sort of ran this sport with an iron fist. You know, there's a story one time Jimmy Spencer said, hey, I said something negative about NASCAR. Bill French Jr. called me into his office and said, Jimmy, come here for a second. And he started drawing a thing on a piece of paper. And he said, hey, Jimmy, do you know what that is? And Jimmy's like, oh, man, that's, that's um, uh, Thompson Speedway up in Connecticut. He goes, yeah, you, you see Thompson Speedway right there? That's where you're going to be going if you keep it up, Jimmy, because you're not going to be running these racetracks. I guarantee you that. And Jimmy Spencer said, I got it right there. I knew whose, whose game it was. It was NASCAR's game. And they worry about what people say now in the media and all kinds of stuff, and it dictates what these people say. I don't care what anybody says. But at the end of the day, they need to hold the same – they need to have the same mentality with the owners, the drivers, and everybody in this sport and say, hold on a second. We're in charge here. You know, you can have the RTA all you want and get together, but at the end of the day, we're the ones that make the decisions. Um, and I think Jim France might be doing that because I really believe that single car qualifying was not popular with the owners and was definitely not popular with NBC or Fox. And for him to go out there and do what he did for the fans, after all what we've seen, I think it's a good step in the right direction. Um, so I guess what I'm getting at is, Spencer – do you think NASCAR still has the power to do that, even though we look at the RTA? What can the RTA do? Do you think they can? Do you think it's a big deal if the RTA says, "You know what, we're boycotting this sport"? Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, like you said, I think NASCAR can do whatever they want. You know, like I said in my previous comment, you know, they're running in their show. So, and you know, it's not just NASCAR. You know, that's for any sport. Baseball, you're with the MLB, and the MLB calls the shots. Same with the NFL. It's uh, it's no different from anything else, and it's like that in other racing sports. I'm sure Philip knows about all that because I'm not only into really NASCAR and some of IndyCar, but that's not the point. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think they can, uh, they can, you know, like you say, you don't like it, you can go home, and uh, you know that's they're the boss, and they can call the shots. You know that if you're a boss for any company, you call the shots, you tell them what's going on. If you don't like it, then go somewhere else. And um, so yeah, I know it's uh. You know, you would think they would want to be a little lenient to not try to run these, uh, you know, team owners out the way or out the business because, you know, without these big team owners, you know, who's going to come in and race? And, you know, without them, you know, it's not NASCAR without cars on the racetrack. And uh, so, yeah, I don't know. It's a big ordeal about, um, you know, bringing all that new car and the, what the owners want. But, you know, they're the boss, and at the end of the day, they call the shots, and they can do what they want. They make the rules, and you have to follow them, and that's just all there is to it. Something we could be missing here, too, and, and Philip, I want to get your opinion on this, is contracts. These drivers don't have contracts to NASCAR. They have contracts to these owners. So if these owners sat there, and let's say hypothetically, and, and this is – listen, 
this is new for NASCAR. You know, we don't really have, you know, in the other sports Spencer mentioned, sure. But there's unions in the NFL. There's unions in MLB where, you know, the, the players union says, hey, listen, we want this and they can fight back and they could strike. And then there's no baseball if the players want to strike. You know, we saw it with hockey. Hockey locked out for an entire season not too long ago. The NBA had a little bit of a lockout for a while. Um, we've never seen this before, Philip, because in NASCAR, we've never had unions. I think the RTA is the closest thing we've ever had to a union in this sport. The driver council is getting there as well. I guess my point is if, this, if the RTA got together, the people of the RTA got together and said, hey, you know what, guys? Let's not field our cars. Now, obviously, they're going to lose a ton of money because their cars aren't on the racetrack. Their sponsors aren't going to be paying a lot of money. But can these drivers – and I think the drivers hold more power than any – than any than ever before if we have the 1969 quote-unquote driver strike at talladega in 2019 uh i think it'll be a major ordeal i think drivers would win honestly because i think we've now put we've taken the 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 emphasis off the sport and we've given it to the drivers dale Earnhardt jr chase elliott you know chase elliott brad keselowski um martin tricks jr kyle bush uh denny hamlin and all these big name drivers kevin harvick decide, you know what, we're not coming up to this sport today because we're not happy with how things are going. NASCAR's in trouble because everybody's going to be like, why is Chase Elliott coming? This is ridiculous. Um, I got to watch, you know, Justin Haley run the four car? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is, is, Philip, what kind of power do you think the RTA has? Do you think that if they really, really wanted to push back on this Generation 7 car, that they could do it and succeed? I mean, if you think, if you talk about, there, there's a few people I look at. I look at Kevin Harvick because of what he has become over these last few years, especially since he went to Tony, uh, drive with his buddy and drive a four car. He has his own radio show, so he has his own platform. Social media is a different platform altogether, but he has his own radio show, which is his own platform. He's the only main driver only the lead dog type driver has that. You consider you put him, Brad, who's big on social media, massive on social media. You put Kyle Bush, who's desperate for as great as he is, whatever, he's desperate for media attention. Those three guys, those three guys are champions, all of them. And if they all got together and they started going, you know, and started thinking about something, it would be they, they decided to go and, and push. It would be something. Then you consider Jimmy Johnson, who's seven time and 80 plus wins and all this. And he's, he's the leader at Hendrick Motorsports. So then what does that mean? That means Chase Elliott, which is the most popular driver in NASCAR, uh, Redneck Jesus Jr. Um, then all of a sudden, if he goes and follows Jimmy, oh crap, there you go. There's, there's, 10 championships and the most popular driver. And then you consider that Joey Logano and Ryan Blaney. I mean, this is a domino effect here. And as, and the point is these drivers are closer than they ever were. You you talk about 69. I mean, Bobby Allison and Richard Petty hated each other's guts. You talk about David Pearson, Richard Petty had a rivalry. They wanted to beat each other every time they went on a racetrack against each other. You talk about all these other great drivers, Cale Yarbrough and and all the other legends that existed in that time. Now, these people still exist. There's, you know, the big-time guys. But they're much closer. There's much more friendship. There's a little more connection. And when it comes to the teams, as I said earlier, there really aren't that many team owners left. So, I mean, if they consolidate, I mean, we can consolidate all this and they go and say, hey, we don't want this. I, the reality is I don't think that it's going to come to we don't want the car. What I think is going to happen is they're going to have some real discussions about what is this car going to be, what's going to be the cost containment within, you know, making this car, how is it going to be so that we can actually do it responsibly because – the, the wasteful spending of NASCAR is why we went from 10 years ago having 55 cars, at, 50 plus cars at Daytona, and we barely had over 40 
this year. You know, it's the illogical ways of doing things, which is why this sport in since Fox took, came in in 2001 and nearly 20 years ago has went from huge fields and full stands to whatever, right-sizing racetracks. So, and the difference is now with Jim France, he went and in a lot of ways fixed American sports car racing. Was it for the good or the bad? It depends on who you talk to. But in the end, there's a very viable prototype sports car class. There's a very viable, two very viable GT classes, and they have a good product that goes out on the racetrack and they have a good series. And Jim France knows what he's doing. So, and but he's also willing to listen and he's willing to understand what these other people that are coming in are wanting or what they need. So under that pretense, there's going to be a solution. The reality is none of these people are going to walk away and take the ball and run. Bruton Smith tried to make alternative series and never came off. You know, all these other people try to do these things. It's the same way as trying to make an alternative football league. It does not work. You know, the, 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 whatever, the Alliance tried, and they had a good product. It was going to take a while, but they had a good product. But they decided to let some investor come in, take their freaking uh, gambling product, get what, get the algorithm for that. He ran out and stopped paying bills, and there went this, went the league. That's literally what you're talking about if you went and decided to go, oh, yeah, I want to go and race in this league. I mean, there, what's stopping most of these guys? Like Kurt Busch is a perfect example. What's stopping Kurt Busch from going and driving an NHRA pro stock car? Nothing. But then the difference is he's done whatever he's wanted to do in this sport, and he's won virtually every big race. What are you? What if you're Will Byron? You haven't really done nothing in this sport. You're not going to leave. You're going to stay. You know, it, it, it all, it's a multifaceted thing and it's a very fascinating, you know, situation. And if it comes off and with this gotcha media that exists with some of the people, the lame streamers they have uh, in the media center, it could really take off. Because we're talking about a little like a year and a half, 18 months, you know, talking about till when we have to really talk about this gen, whatever, seven car Uh, but we'll see what happens i guess yeah we will it's gonna be very interesting to see what happens with the generation seven car and the business behind it something to keep an eye on here in the next like you said 12 to 18 months here um and i I guess what you know at the end of the day i was just curious on the leverage the rta has and how much they can get and how much you know um i'm not sure there's a ton and you brought up a good point about the drivers being as close as they ever have i think the owners are as well Okay, guys, Dover this weekend. It's a triple-header weekend, Truck Series, Xfinity Series, and Cup Series uh, at Dover this weekend. Um, real quick, I want to get some picks here before we go. We head out. Uh, let's get uh, Philip Matthew here first. Um, what are your thoughts on, on who will run good this weekend in the Cup, Xfinity, and Trucks here at Dover this weekend? Well, I'll, I'll say for Cup. Uh, I'll probably go and go with Kevin Harvick. He's the defending race winner uh, at Dover, and I think I would give him a pretty good shot to try to repeat. I also think that Chase Elliott, who comes off his victory on Sunday, he's the most recent winner at Dover. He's done really, really well there. Uh, Those are two guys that I would look at in terms of that. In terms of the Xfinity, it's a dash final dash or cash race, and I do believe it'll come down to either Christopher Bell, because Joe Gibbs has an amazing package at Dover. It doesn't really matter who they put in that race car. Uh, they've had numerous drivers either contend to win or win. It'll come down to either Christopher Bell or Tyler Reddick. And in terms of the trucks, uh, uh, I'd probably, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go, I'll go Johnny Sauter. Uh, it's a chalk pick because he's done really well there recently. Uh, he's due for a win. It's now the, uh, you know, now they're really getting started with the season. They need to go, and now that 
uh, Kyle Busch isn't there to ruin every race, they'll probably be able to get some momentum and uh, figure Johnny Sauter starts his path to a second championship with a win on uh, Friday afternoon. How about you, Spencer? Who you got in the in the three week races this weekend at Dover? Uh, uh, I'll probably yeah. I got some similar picks to Philip. I'll probably go with Chase. You know, he's run strong there in uh, the past two previous years and uh, snagged the win there. So him, um, Harvick, like he mentioned, he's a good he's a good one there. He uh, always runs well there. And uh, I'll probably have to go with Kyle Busch um, for Xfinity. Um, I'm going to have to go Tyler Reddick. You know, I think if uh, the field don't watch out, he could repeat what he did last year and with a different team. Uh, I think he's really hitting on all cylinders right now. He's constantly up front. So uh, that's going to be my pick for there. And then uh, for Saturday, um, I mean, sorry, for Friday trucks, I'm probably going to have to go with uh, Brent Moffitt. Um, I think the GMS, uh, that team is uh, pretty decent. So uh, I'd like to see him uh, run well at uh, Dover, so that's probably my pick for the trucks. A couple of points here I want to make. One, look out for Stuart Friesian this weekend. Still doesn't want to race um, in the truck series in his career. Runs pretty good here at Dover. He's somebody to it's keep coming. an eye on. That's a GMS truck there for uh, Friesian Hallmall Racing. Keep an eye on him. He could be a, a, a guy to keep your eye on here for Friday's race in the truck series. Saturday, uh, I think Justin Allgaier is a guy who's had some rotten luck here in the past few weeks. Uh, I think he's ready to win and, and put it all together and go to victory lane. And on Sunday, I'm going to go with – I know it's a, it's going out on a real limb here, but uh, unfortunately I'm going to go with for you guys with Kyle Busch and the pedigree Toyota this weekend at Dover. So uh, I want to thank everybody for listening to Talking in Circles. We'll be back here. We'll, we'll break down and review Dover this – after this weekend's race on Sunday. So see us then. 9 o'clock Sunday night, we'll review Dover. Good night, everybody. We'll see you then.